August is back to school month for many children and teachers. Uh, with COVID, uh, there are many issues that are facing children, parents, and also educators. Uh, I've gotten a lot of calls about masking and what are your rights for privacy when it comes to medical issues in COVID. Uh, with us to discuss these issues is one of the best experts uh, in the state on the issue of education law. His name is Stephen Glink. He practices here in Chicago, and he dedicates his practice to handling matters relating to a wide variety of education issues for parents children and educators Uh, welcome to the show steve thank you for joining me yeah thanks for having me how are you doing today i'm doing well you know let's let's start with covid issues we we had spoken a little bit this weekend about the fact that you're getting and i am getting a lot of calls from parents who are saying oh the school is not uh, mandating masks and i want them to do it uh and vice versa what rights does a parent have to let's just say if you wanted to sue the school uh, for one way or the other would 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 a parent be successful in a lawsuit like that well it all depends on the the facts at the time but i'm going to say in a general sense no because right now the law is very clear that um, the board of education for every school district has the discretionary authority to decide these policies and it doesn't matter what any neighboring school district does. So if you live in Lake Forest, for example, and your board of education wants all masks, uh, if you're a parent and you say, well, Deerfield doesn't require masks because they don't think it's necessary, it doesn't matter. Every board of education has its own discretionary authority based on whatever factors they want to consider. So let's just say, uh, for instance, that a parent sends their child to school in September, there's no mask mandate, and let's say 10 children in a class uh, contract COVID, and let's say that you could even prove that they they got it there. What kind of lawsuit, would, would that lawsuit be successful saying, you know what, you went against maybe some CDC guidelines or you didn't take all the precautions necessary, would that lawsuit be successful in your view? Again, I'm going to say probably not for this reason. So first of all, the CDC guidelines are just that. They're guidelines. They're not mandates. So the mandates would come from the state of Illinois, which, again, as I said, right now, every board has their own power to make the discretionary decision. Um, in, In a case like this, schools are not required to be perfect. They're required to be reasonable, take reasonable steps. And, um, you know, the question is, what's reasonable under the circumstances? And um, even if they are guilty, in many cases, you still can't sue them because the law gives them immunity to protect them. So, yeah, these lawsuits are just going to would be very, very difficult. So for all the parents out there who who want to get legal, even if you wanted to pay lawyers thousands of dollars, because that that usually is uh, is the sticking point uh, for for some people to even ask the question. But uh, they, they probably wouldn't be successful. What about um, schools? I don't know if schools are doing this, but what happens if a school requires children to submit to periodic saliva tests? What do you think about that from a legal standpoint? What are the issues attendant to that? Okay, so there's a big difference between that type of an issue and uh, the mask issue. Um, one question I'm asked a lot is whether uh, the, the child, any child, any student has a constitutional right to refuse to wear a mask. Um, my answer is no, there's nothing in the Constitution about that. <laughs> um, but there is uh, something in the Constitution about unreasonable searches and seizures. 
And um, this is where, you know, blood tests, saliva tests, urine tests all come in within the, the general category of searches and seizures. What I would say to parents generally is the courts balance the interest in these cases. The first thing they ask is, is there a legitimate government interest in performing the test? And if there is, the next question is, does the, the method that the school is selecting, is that the most reasonable or least restrictive way to address the interest? And then finally, you also have to look at the student's rights um, to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, and it all comes down to what a judge thinks is reasonable. Um, in a lot of these cases, the judge is going to say, well, this is a national health crisis, and especially now, you know, things have changed uh, from the last month or so. So now things are going up. It's more of a crisis. The school has a duty to protect the health and safety of the staff, the teachers, the kids, everybody. And um, is this a reasonable way to get there? Balance that out versus the interest. So all they're being asked to do is, I'll say, spit in a test tube. A judge may say that's reasonable. If they're making them give blood tests, uh, that might be a different issue. It's hard to predict, but I'm guessing, you know, judges, from the time this whole pandemic started, the flow of the cases that I've read are that the government has a legitimate interest in protecting the health and safety of the students and the staff and the community. They have extraordinary power in these types of extraordinary cases, and judges just generally do not want to overrule the discretionary judgment of another legislative or executive body. That makes that makes sense, and I think that would be, if I were a, a betting person, I, I would say that's the way it would come down. Um, you talked a little bit, we, we were, again, we were talking a little bit about teachers, and uh, and I was on Steve Dale's show prior, and we were talking about how a lot of businesses are jumping on board to have mandatory vaccinations. Walmart, Google, Facebook, I think Morgan Stanley was on board this weekend, I saw. So you're having all these businesses mandate vaccines for their employers. What about teachers? Do you think, are there different interests uh, relates to teachers requiring vaccinations in the workplace? Um, yes, there are in, in many cases. So first of all, private schools are pretty much like private businesses. They can pretty much do whatever they want. There are a few um, contractual-based type restrictions, but like any other private business, if they want to say our employees have to wear a mask, you have to wear a mask. If they want to say you have to be vaccinated, you have to be. Parochial schools in particular have a lot more leeway because there's a rule of law that they call the ministerial exception, which means uh, separation of church and state. Judges will not interfere with any decision or any judgment that affects the ministry of the religion. So they get an extra line of of freedom there public school employees it's a little different because the public schools are bound by the constitution both state and federal and other laws but where it really comes down to so for example teachers there's two types of teachers in illinois probationary teachers and tenured teachers probationary teachers are for the most part employees that will and have no legal right to a job they can be fired at any time for any reason or no reason except if prohibited by law. So even if you're a probationary teacher, 
you can't be filed because of or you cannot be fired because of your race, your disability, your age, something like that. On the other hand, tenure teachers have a different situation because tenure is a property right in Illinois. Generally, in Illinois, you cannot fire a tenure teacher unless they commit what we call an irremediable act of misconduct. Irremediable meaning that any harm you cause cannot be cured or fixed. So the question the judge would have to decide is, is refusing to get a vaccine an act of insubordination that is irremediable in nature? Um, I'm guessing no, because it's really not a misconduct. But then the question becomes, like in any insubordination case, what can an employer do and what can the school do? They can seek termination of a tenured teacher. I think it would be an uphill battle, um, but it's sort of a to be determined. My guess is what I think a school should do for tenured teachers who refuse, and, and this may segue into another part, um, assign those teachers to any virtual classes and have them teach virtually at home or put them on administrative leave until things change and then hire replacements. Interesting. Interesting that the the tenure, the issue of tenure is a property issue. And if you take that away from someone unreasonably, that creates a whole new legal challenge. If you have a question for Stephen Glink, uh, give us a call here. First, before we go to break, Steve, if anyone has a question or wants to, uh, you know, get advice from you, uh, can you give out your contact information? Absolutely. Uh, My office number is 847-480-7749. My direct email address is my first name, Steve, S-T-E-V-E, all lowercase, at educationrights.com. Steve at educationrights.com. When we come back, I'll take your legal questions with uh, Steve, 312-981-7200. Anything about schools, bullying, IEPs, uh, anything relating to education, we'll try to address your questions here on the Karen Conti Show on WGN. We're talking education law, school law with Stephen Glink, who is an expert on the issue. Uh, he works in here in Chicago area, advising parents and children and educators. Uh, thank you for joining us, Steve. You know, I was reading that uh, people, uh, parents are really uh, increasing uh, the number of uh, kids who are going to be homeschooled. The percentages are, are just kind of skyrocketing. One study that I saw said that double the amount of people who are homeschooling are, are now homeschooling. Um, and I don't know if, if that's related to not wanting to send the kids back with masks or the idea that maybe they did a lot of homeschooling and they realize it's, you know, they, they prefer it. Uh, but tell it, can you tell our listeners what are some of the things that a homeschooling parent needs to know from a legal standpoint? Yes, absolutely. So the first thing I want your listeners to know and understand is there's a big difference between homeschooling and what we call homebound instruction. Homebound instruction um, applies when a a student has a physical or a medical issue that prevents him or her from attending school temporarily. Um, in that case, the student is still enrolled in the school district, and the school district has to provide educational services. Homeschooling is completely different. Uh, in those cases, the student is not enrolled in the school district, and as a general rule, the local school district has absolutely no obligation to provide any type of educational services to a homeschooled 
student. Though one exception is in uh, special ed cases, um, a home, uh, school district will have a private, I mean, a public school district would have to provide some sort of services under a service plan, but it's, it's very limited what they have to uh, supply to the kids. Um, school, homeschooling is largely unregulated in Illinois. I would direct your readers to go, um, your listeners to go to the Illinois State Board of Education website. They have a whole segment there. And really, the only uh, requirement is there are certain courses that the parents must make sure the kids take when they're homeschooled, but it's largely unregulated. The State Board of Ed does not monitor curriculum. They do not monitor attendance. They do not monitor content. Um, you're pretty much left uh, to your own device. Um, the real issues that I see, um, and, and by the way, if you're not enrolled there, the kids are not entitled to participate in any extracurricular activities. So sports, band, drama, anything like that, they're not enrolled in the school district. They're not entitled. Um, the real issues I see uh, a lot in homeschooling is, one, um, for those where it applies, there's no AP courses or anything like that. Um, two, if you're thinking of your child going to a four-year college or university, um, in those cases, the applications are going to be highly scrutinized to see that the the homeschool educational background meets whatever the the college or university is looking for here, and um, th- that could be an issue when they you know they say, well, what what was the content of your chemistry course? Or what was the content of your algebra course? Um, There may be a lot of skepticism there. But like I said, you only have to make sure that you teach the kids the classes that are required. How you do it and what's contained in it is pretty much up to the parents. I think it's a good idea maybe to powwow with the local school district. And I know there are some, you know, online resources where, you know, the, the online private companies can help provide uh, parents with content. Steve, um, I, I have heard it said that, you know, you're, to your point about college, or or sometimes uh, parents might take a, a child out and then re-enroll them maybe in high school. So you might have that same issue where you need to show that the, the student got, you know, whatever instruction in certain uh, courses. It's probably a good idea to keep really good records, right? Like we did this online course, or we did, we read this bo- this textbook, or we did these kinds of things. Um, so that if you're asked those questions, you have the specific kind of contemporaneous notes relating to that. Is that a good idea? Yes, it is, because, uh, you know, as you know, as a lawyer, documentation is really an important thing. And I, I want to add a, one or two other things. So first of all, um, I think the Illinois State Board of Education on their website, they have a link to a program they call Illinois Virtual School, which can um, provide supplemental homebound classes. Um, Illinois doesn't offer any free, at least the state of Illinois doesn't, free online classes for homeschooled kids. Um, But they do allow, um, you know, this virtual school you can supplement. Also, in some cases, depending on availability, um, Illinois does allow part-time attendance. So if the parents are concerned about full-time, either with masks or without masks, there is a process. You contact your local school 
and um, you can apply for part-time attendance there and see if, if they allow that. Interesting. Interesting. Let's switch topics a little bit. Uh, I was talking to some friends about the issue of bullying, and I just hear from parents of kids these days that bullying is rampant, and there are suicides that seem to be related to, in some ways, to bullying and being ostracized in school. Um, Steve, you've been doing this kind of practice uh, a long time, and you've devoted your entire practice to this area. Are you seeing an uptick, say, in the last 10 years? And then I'm going to talk a little bit to you about what you should do if your child is being bullied. Um, Yes, it's absolutely rising, and and it's really dramatic. And to be honest, from my perspective, um, the source of it is all social media. And the more social media that's available to the kids, um, the more bullying there, there is going to be. And these kids, you know, they, they go on Instagram, they go on Facebook, they go on Snapchat, they go on TikTok, they go everywhere. They make their videos or they direct comments towards kids. And um, even in cases where they're not even attending, intending to do it, you know, sometimes they'll make a, uh, a video that's mocking another student and they send it to a friend. Well, you know, as you know, once somebody gets it and posts it online somewhere, it goes out to 10 million of your closest friends. And the schools almost always uh, find out about it. You know, a parent sees it, they tell the school. So um, the, the whole targeting thing, it doesn't have to be direct. It can be indirect. And it's really anything that affects um, other students or the the de- uh, delivery of educational services that's prohibited. All the, the public schools all have a student handbook with a student code of conduct that discusses this, but the schools are, are very keen on addressing it. Uh, my problem with the local schools is they don't seem to want to do anything to prohibit it, um, although that's changing a little bit. So, you know, going back to the social media, uh, I covered the case quite extensively about the cheerleader who went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. She was disciplined for profanity that she used on social media outside the school arena. Uh, and the question was whether or not uh, her conduct uh, adversely affected what was going on in school. And the Supreme Court pretty much said no. It was just a few uh, swear words that she said uh, on social media that really didn't impact what went on in school. But that that being said, I, I would probably think, Steve, that you would be very concerned and to, to tell parents that the kids really need to watch what they say because you don't want a child expelled. You don't want a child to be disciplined by the school for things that they're saying completely outside the schoolyard. I mean, and it can happen. Yes, and and really, um, you know, of course, as a, as a student advocate, um, that decision was music to my ears. However, it is not a blanket prohibition uh, against any discipline by the school. What the schools look at is whether or not there is a substantial impact on the delivery of educational schools or if it affects the reputation of the school. In um, So, for example, in 2007, there's a U.S. Supreme Court case called Morse, M-O-R-S-E versus Frederick, where a kid attended a uh, homecoming parade on his local Main Street wearing a shirt that said, Bong Hits for Jesus. The school suspended him for advocating uh, drug use. 
The U.S. Supreme Court held that because they said, well, if the school didn't have the right to do that, it would appear that the school is endorsing drug use. Now, the, the cheerleader case was very much different. It was a private Snapchat, and all it did was use um, swear words. You know, nobody was targeted. There was no vulgar. There was no hate speech. There was no anything. And the Supreme Court took very big note of that. It was a lot like the, um, you know, the Vietnam protest cases where you have a right to peacefully protest. But in my view, it doesn't give a student a right to go in there and target somebody, even if it's off school grounds, it's not a school computer, it is no way related to school. If, if you go in and target people or say threatening speech or hateful speech, um, there's a good chance the school's discipline is going to be upheld. Stephen Glink, thank you so much for joining us. Can you quickly give out your contact information in case listeners would like to talk to you? Yes, absolutely. Um, again, my office number is 847-480-7749. My email address is Steve, my first name, S-T-E-B-E, all lowercase, at educationrights.com. Thank you for joining us and filling us in on all these uh, great tips and uh, words of advice.